As you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to reorient us to what we're looking at in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, I know I was only gone last week, but it seems like a long time since I've been here and, and preaching, and we've been in 1 Corinthians. We're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going to be taking an extended break from it soon. Um, we'll have the Labor Day retreat, and then the services after the Labor Day retreat will be uh, focused on prayer, teaching and preaching about prayer in preparation for our revival services at the end of September, which will be a series of prayer meetings. So we really only have just a couple more weeks that we'll be in 1 Corinthians. If you'll remember our first couple of Sundays, the overall, the overarching message um, that we are getting as we are entering into this book is that the church is imperfect. It's very flawed and there's many issues with us as a people. The church is imperfect, but it has been given a glorious calling and everything necessary to fulfill that calling. Now, in the passage that we uh, were studying the weeks prior to me going on vacation and that we're going to jump back into, we see that one of the things we are given as Christians, as God's people, is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, which is totally unique, totally distinct, totally separate from the wisdom of men on a completely different plane. We have this wisdom revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the many blessings we have through Jesus Christ, one of the many resources we have to be the church, to fulfill our glorious calling. Now, what I'd like to do for this sermon is read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6, through chapter 3, ending at verse 4. But we're actually only going to look at one verse, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. So that's kind of the game plan. So we're going to read all of that, and the reason I want to do that is it's important to get the broader context, especially when you're going to be zeroing in on just one verse. It's important to get the broader context of what he's talking about and the flow of thought. So I think that'll be helpful for us. But before we do that, let's pray together, and I want to encourage you to ask God to speak to you through his word. Would you bow with me? Father, please speak to us. In your word, I ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal your thoughts to us. And we confess that we do depend on you for this, that it does not matter how eloquent I am or how ferociously we take notes. Ultimately, we are at your mercy For you to reveal your word to us, your voice to us, and your thoughts to us in your word. and So I ask that you would make that happen this morning. Please speak through your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you'll follow along with me in your Bible, I'll be reading from the ESV, so it may look a little different than yours. You're likely reading from the NIV, but there'll be... Pretty close, and the different translations give a little bit richer understanding of what the original Greek really means. So we begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age 
or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? We'll stop our reading there. And we're going to focus on verse 14. But there toward the end of what we just read, the Holy Spirit through Paul is revealing that there are three types of people in this sense, in the sense of of how people receive God's wisdom. There are three types of people. There are natural people, there are spiritual people, and there are what we'll call fleshy people. We're just going to look at the natural people today, and I, I hope and believe if the Lord allows, next Sunday we'll look at spiritual people and fleshy people. But for today, we're going to look at verse 14 and try to understand what God is teaching us about natural people. When it says the natural person in my ESV translation, your translation might say something like the person without the Spirit or people who don't have the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about is just that. People who do not, through salvation, through Jesus Christ, have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're three, yet one in a way that is mind-blowing. That is one, yet another example of how God is just too glorious for us to fully comprehend and grasp. 
We can't quite understand how he is three and one at the same time. Just like we can't quite comprehend how human beings have total free will, yet God is totally sovereign at the same time. These things are just too marvelous for us. That's how Paul puts it. It's just too lofty for us. But the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is God in the same way that the Son is God and the Father is God. Christians have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said when he was going to be leaving earth, he said, it's better for you that I go because we're going to send you the helper with a capital H. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. The natural person referred to in verse 14 doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Doesn't have, as verse 13 talks about him, the one who teaches the wisdom of God, the very thoughts of God, the one who searches all things, including the depths of God himself, and knows God's thoughts and reveals God's thoughts to us. See, God, the Bible can be really frustrating sometimes because God through his word and through his ministry to us is always trying to get us to pay more attention to the spiritual level of reality but usually our eyes and our attention is locked on the physical level of reality it's the same as with your kids and their screens or your grandkids and their Screens, their TVs or their iPads or their iPods or their phones or their Nintendo DS or whatever it is that the kids in your family play. You know, we went to the beach last week and we basically let our kids just have all the screen time they wanted on the way there. It just makes for a more peaceful ride for everybody. But at some point we have to say, put the screens away because we're crossing the Holden Beach Bridge and there's the ocean. Now, my kids didn't fight us on that, but I can perceive a situation in which kids would fuss and fight and not want to put down their little screen and enjoy the majesty of the physical realm. And then we parents shake our heads. These youngsters, they're so wrapped up in the digital world, they're missing the real world. And then here God looks down at us and says, these foolish people of mine are so wrapped up in the physical world, they're missing the real world, the spiritual world. You know, one day all this physical reality is going to melt away. And all that's going to be left is the the spiritual realm. And so the Bible is always trying to get us there. It's always trying to, to help us to understand the physical through the lens of what's true spiritually. And so we have the Holy Spirit so that we as Christians can operate with a supernatural spiritual wisdom of God. Not just of the merely physical human wisdom of our intellects and our brains and our educations. So the natural person is one who has no access to these things of the Spirit because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And that's who we're going to consider today. I think it'll help us to understand ourselves. I think it'll help us to understand the people around us uh, when we go to work and our families. Um, I think it'll help us to minister to people and love people. So the chief characteristic of the natural person, the person without the Holy Spirit, is that they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. It's pretty simple. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, does not receive 
the things of the Spirit of God. You know, I'm this way whenever someone tries to sell me anything. Um, maybe because I worked in sales for a little while, I am immediately distrustful of anyone trying to sell me anything. It could be the greatest thing in the world. But as soon as I feel like someone's trying to sell me something, I will not receive it. I will not accept it. I could be on fire and they're selling me a fire extinguisher. If I feel like they're trying to sell me something, I don't hear it anymore. Uh, all growing up, when the commercials came on, commercials are these things that used to come on between programs before everything was in demand or on demand. We would never watch the commercials. We would flip to something that we had no interest in so long as we weren't being advertised to. Uh, so, you know, you might remember the commercials from the 80s or some funny commercial. People will come up and say, hey, did you ever see these funny commercials? <laughs> no, I've never paid attention to commercials. I will not accept it. I will not receive it. You're this way when a telemarketer calls uh, with varying degrees of tact and politeness. Uh, most people will not entertain a telemarketer on the phone. Uh, Meredith always laughs at me because I'm like, I, I will not receive sales calls uh, to my cell phone or my home phone, but I'm, I'm very polite about it. And I always say, you know, I'm, I'm not interested, but I wish you all the best with your calls today. And they're, they're always cordial and I get off the phone quick. I won't receive it. I won't accept it. The natural person won't receive, won't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, what are the things... Of the Spirit of God. Well, I think that that's just been explained in verses 9 through 13. So let's look back at those verses again. These are the things that the natural person will not accept. Verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Okay, so here's some clues as to the things of the Spirit of God. It's things that otherwise are not revealed to us. You know, there's certain things that are revealed to us just by nature of being humans. You know, we see the, the orderliness and design of nature and we can, can perceive and discern some things about God. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. Um, aspects of his character and his power are evident just in creation itself. The theological term for that would be general revelation. But there's other revelation that comes only through the Holy Spirit. And these are things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and the heart of man cannot even imagine. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now Paul, it's hard to follow sometimes Paul's syntax. But in the Holy Spirit we are given the very access to the very thoughts of God himself. So when he, in verse 14, talks about the things of the Spirit of God that the natural person does not accept, he's talking about these things revealed to us through the Spirit, about God's thoughts, about reality, who he is, who we are, 
put down in words. Okay? That's what we're talking about. The natural person doesn't accept it. Now, one point of application from this is that as you grow as a Christian, and as you come more and more to love, growing close to God and worshiping God through receiving His truth revealed through His Word, as this becomes more and more important to you, you need to be prepared for the fact that many people will not care about this at all and will have no regard for it, no interest in it, and they really just won't accept it. You know, this is one reason why unequally yoked marriages, you know, if, if, if I had someone wanting to be married and they were meeting with me and one was a Christian and one wasn't, this would be one of the problems. The Christian is going to be more and more and more making this the center point of their lives and the non-Christian, the natural person, will be completely dead to it. And so the believing spouse will, will be living this whole other life that they cannot share with their unbelieving spouse. It's an impossibility. So we need to be prepared for the fact that even though this means the world to us, for many people it means nothing, nothing at all. They don't accept it. That's why, you know, your deepest friendships as you grow as a Christian will be with other Christians. It's not because you don't enjoy the company of your non-Christian friends as much or they're not as funny or whatever, but because you're not going to have the deepest part of you in common anymore. And that's why when you, you might have a friend that's not walking close to Christ or maybe isn't a Christian at all, uh, who is not being growing in the wisdom of God through the Spirit, through the Word, You might see them more often, but if you run into some Christian friend that you haven't seen in a decade, but they are, y'all can connect on a deeper level instantly than you can with this friend that you spend a bunch of time with. So the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? And Paul gives us two reasons. They will not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they just won't. And because they can't. So, reason number one in verse 14. Why will the natural person not accept the things of the Spirit of God? For they are folly to him. They are foolish to him. They are nonsense to the natural person. Now, this is, this is an important point for us to realize as Christians. It's not that the natural person sees the Christian faith as one of many viable worldviews, perfectly respectable. It's that it seems foolish. It just seems like nonsense. It seems like a bunch of people swept up into some superstitious nonsense, weak-minded people, can't think for themselves, listen to whatever their preacher tells them, believe whatever some book says. You know, you believe in life after physical death, even after all we know about neuroscience and how the brain works. and You believe in a virgin birth, even after all we know about how the reproductive system works. You base your everything and your whole life on faith. You believe that this obscure carpenter who lived a long time ago was the Messiah, 
Just because he said so? Just because some book says so? I mean, that seems foolish. You know, if you press people who, like you see those coexist bumper stickers on cars, on one sense, that's a good sentiment. You know, we shouldn't all be bombing and killing each other constantly if that's what they mean. But in another sense, I think sometimes people mean all these different symbols on that coexist bumper sticker, all these different religions are equally true. Well, that can't be. Um, Many of them are, are... Exclusive. If they're true, the others can't be true. In Christianity, especially, if it's true, the others can't be true. So even those people that want us all to coexist, you know, if you, if you were to press them and say, well, that sounds good, but here's what I really believe. I really believe Jesus Christ is the only way. Then it will be rejected and it will be dismissed. It will be seen as foolish. You know, it reminds me of I think I'll read it. Romans chapter 1. You know, we think we're so wise as humans. We think we've figured out so much. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You know, there are those who suppress the truth of even what we can see plainly from creation around us. And they deny that there's a creator and they deny that there's any order to this and there's any meaning to life and that we're just masses of cells and tissues and like a tree or a dog or a flower will one day wilt and die and that's just the way it goes. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So much of the world around us are natural people that don't have the Holy Spirit, and therefore they're operating by human wisdom only. And so when they think that the things of Christianity are foolish, we have to remember They're basing that only on the wisdom that they they have. They just haven't seen what we've seen. Now, what do we do in response to this? Do we debate? Do we argue? Do we marshal up all of our logical points as to why Christianity makes sense? And I do think Christianity makes sense. I do think it holds up to all the arguments. And uh, My point here is not be a fool because that's okay. You know, we, we don't forsake our we don't stop using our brains or anything but is the answer to try to argue people into faith well i don't think so because of the second reason why natural people do not accept the things of the spirit of god first reason is for they are folly to him and the second reason is he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned it's not just that The natural person won't accept the things of the Spirit of God is that they can't. 
And you couldn't until God intervened, and I couldn't until God intervened. I remember reading in one of his books, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a famous minister and preacher. He's actually also a medical doctor. He's very influential um, in the British evangelical movement of the last century. And um, He was invited to a very public debate from someone with an atheistic point of view. And he declined. He didn't go. And a lot of people criticized him for it. Um, I, I think they did it in more highbrow ways, but I think basically the public sentiment was chicken. And so here's a response. He had a longer, more articulate response to the criticism, but here's part of what he said. Many felt that I was rejecting and missing a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. This public debate to debate the things of, of the Bible and Christ with an atheist. But I maintain then, and I still maintain, that my decision was the correct one. Quite apart from any detailed reasons which I'm going to give, I think it is wrong as a total approach. My impression is that experience of the kind of thing... My That syntax is weird. My experience of this kind of thing shows clearly that it very rarely succeeds or leads to anything. It provides entertainment, but as far as I'm aware and in my experience and knowledge of it, it has very rarely been fruitful or effective as a means of winning people to the Christian faith. People aren't argued logically into faith in Jesus Christ. It's more supernatural than that. Before the transformation that comes, we don't have the capacity to accept the things of the Spirit of God. You know, the... The challenge to us in evangelism is not to be brilliant, it's to be faithful with the powerful message of the gospel. You know, somebody I knew, and I can't remember who it was, um, got a new DVD player and went out and bought a Blu-ray disc and was all excited about it, but it wouldn't play the Blu-ray disc. And they just got mad at technology itself. Why won't it play? It's the same shape and size. It's incompatible. And in the same way, the things of the Spirit of God are incompatible with natural man. And when we go about being the church, and especially evangelism, through natural means of persuasion and logic, we'll get natural results. We'll get people who maybe are a little bit more mentally respectful of the religion, but probably not saved people. Salvation requires supernatural intervention from God. Yeah, that's how Paul's conversion was. Paul's a smart guy. He wasn't converted because of logical arguments. He was converted because of an encounter with God. Same reason you became a Christian. You know, C.S. Lewis, same reason he became a Christian. He was an, an, an atheist scholar who ended up becoming one of the most celebrated Christian thinkers uh, in history. In 1947, Time Magazine put him on the cover because he was perceived by the world as a secular academic, but he became a Christian and was publicly proclaiming his faith in Jesus Christ. And I wanted to—I don't want to just read to you all day, but I did want to share with you a little bit of his testimony on how he came to be a Christian. He writes this in his book, Surprised by Joy. It's his autobiography. And he writes this about his feelings when he could no longer deny God's existence to himself. He wrote, 
You must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind drifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? Now that's when he gave in and acknowledged that God was God. But it wasn't the exact moment that he became a Christian. That happened a little later, and I'd like to read that to you as well, if you'll indulge me for just a little bit more reading. He writes, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. So here's a very intellectual man, a brilliant man, very thoughtful man. He says, I know when, but I don't know how the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade, someplace in Britain, I guess, or England. I was driven there one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Now, everybody's testimony is different. And it always comes through having heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it rarely, if ever, comes through fierce arguments and debates. And here in C.S. Lewis and, and even in Paul, you have an example of people who did not even want to be open to it who could not escape God's drawing them in. And I've seen that happen recently with people. It's a supernatural thing. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I think we underestimate the peril of the people in the world who are in this natural state. And in our age of arguing and especially how many different platforms we have to argue and fuss and fight, you know, you try to read your Facebook wall and you start to get all tense in your shoulders because everybody's just fussing and fighting and arguing and saying things in rude ways that they would never say in person and um, saying things that don't logically even make sense. And God reminds us the battle is on the spiritual level. And I want to close with Ephesians 6. Famous passage about the armor of God. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. All these natural people who don't have the Holy Spirit are not our enemies. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual reality. There's spiritual warfare going on. And if anybody is going to come to Christ, any of the people that we love and that we pray for and that we want to become a Christian, if they're going to become a Christian, it's going to be because God intervenes. So we need to pray much more than we complain about people. And we're going to have opportunities for prayer. You know, we'll pray at the end of this service. Every Sunday morning, we pray together in my office. A small handful of us. I would love to have too many people to meet in my office anymore. And I really want to encourage you to consider joining us at 930 for prayer every Sunday morning. At the end of September, we're going to have our revival prayer meetings. And that's basically all we're going to do is pray together. Some of you may be a little intimidated by the thought of praying with people. Maybe it's not something you're used to. Um, Don't even think about that. Don't even consider that. It's not an issue. And you'll see what I mean when you come and pray. Um, It'll be facilitated in a way. I'm not going to bring you up here and say, here's a microphone. Pray some eloquent, masterful prayer. Uh, We're going to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it'll be natural. And we'll pray together. And as individuals, we need to pray. And when we rely on natural methods, we get natural results. But when we rely on God's power, then there's hope for natural people. We need to proclaim the gospel and trust in the power of God to save people through the gospel and not rely on our own arguments and our logic and debate. And we need to live in light of the truth that we have as revealed to the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. You have access to the thoughts of God through the Holy Spirit's inspired word and revelation. And he's in you. We have that. We, let's live in light of that. Let's be valiant men and women of God. Let's repent of the sins we mess around with. Let's turn from those things, turn toward God through Jesus Christ, and really live in light of what he's revealed to us. And from that position of a life clearly different from the world's, we can evangelize. You can evangelize. You can tell people about Jesus Christ. You can trust in that power of the gospel and not feel pressure to dazzle people with your rhetoric and your knowledge. And Lord willing, we will see natural people transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see. So I'd like for us to close praying for that together right now. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask that um, if anything that I said during this sermon is off base from what's rock solid true based on what you've revealed to us, help us all to just forget that. Um, But everything that we've heard from you through your word, let it sink into our hearts like concrete and change the way we view the world, change the way we view ourselves and the people around us. If there's anyone here among us today who is a natural person, who does not have the Holy Spirit, who does not receive or accept these things, I pray that you would transform them and that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as we go forth from here, Lord, let us be your people in this world. Let us remember 
the spiritual realities going on in us and around us. Lord, help us not to lean so heavily on worldly human wisdom. Help us live life with our Bibles open, leaning on your wisdom. And we thank you for giving it to us. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Thank you so much for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for giving us your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.